2: This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods.
3: Ladies and gents, hippies and hitmen, sax players and government snitches, feds and flatlanders alike, welcome to Increment
4: Vice. I saw it, and I utterly and immediately adored it.
5: Because I feel that a lot of my love of this movie, and why I'm actually a little nervous to be talking about it, is that I I don't want to deconstruct it. I don't want to, because I don't know if I can exactly, yeah. and I feel like I'm constantly grasping which is why I love it so much and why I keep returning to it.
6: Or it seems to be a very conventional noir in its structure and its approach, but it's also informing you like, this film is not supposed to make sense. The entire point of the mystery is not gonna make sense. And you get that the moment you hear someone is technically Jewish, but wants to be a Nazi. I wonder if I'll ever rewatch this movie again. <laughs> I guess you're watching it so many times. I'm sort of like, I wonder if it's going to need another five years with me.
7: And It's something that you learn when you're crafting mysteries that a little bit of coincidence is okay. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it, it suggests these great things at work.
3: Yeah, when you live through that, when you live through an era where everybody's crazy, where it's all kind of crazy, how how do you stay sane? How, what do you hold on to? What's your anchor? And I think decency is a really good answer. I think Doc is, for him, that's the one gesture. One of the similarities between say a druggy movie or story and a hardboiled detective story is the they're both about finding the interconnectedness of everything.
6: The part of the reason I requested this scene is it's It's one of the moments in cinema from the last decade that has stayed with me the longest because (laughs) I love, I actually love chocolate covered bananas. I, I feel like we all have a
5: suspicion that there's larger forces going on that we can't control. Um, that uh, orchestrating things in a way that we can't even see. And I, I like that
7: he kind of, again, oriented it in this sort of female gaze along with male gaze. I, I do like the way that those two things complement each other in the movie.
5: But Brolin just really, I think he really dug down, like, incredibly deep to give mm. this layered, very nuanced, very pathos-driven performance.
4: And for me, part of the appeal of Inherent Vice versus a movie like, say, Chinatown, which I also love. Um, but, you know, Chinatown, the plotting is like a Swiss watch. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it very it's very clear. There's a lot of, it's very complicated, but there's a lot of clarity to it. And I think they each have different appeals, and they're each equally valid. And I think part of the appeal of Chinatown is that it gives shape to life's mysteries and complexities. And I think part of the appeal of Inherent Vice is that it respects life's mysteries and complexities. <laughs> He's sucking that
0: banana down, man. Yeah, but, and I gotta uh, tell
3: you, those those don't taste very good. Those bananas. I,
4: I'm.
0: You know what? I
3: bless I li- my guests. When, heart, I, listened that, yeah, um. when I
1: listened When I
0: listen to that episode, I
3: I was really shocked at your your displeasure with the chocolate covered banana because I find
4: the chocolate covered banana to be delicious, <laughs> and that's not a sexual euphemism.
3: I know where you're going. Okay. It's my. I think it's my favorite. So go ahead.
0: It's the part where he's talking to Sortiliz oh and she's God. like you, touching his this face. Is it, this
3: is it. Oh, you're doing it. You're doing it. This and is And he's my scene. waving
0: the postcard and he's just like, I just feel like I have to help that guy. Oh. Like he just has this. Oh, man. And you're like, is that what the movie's about?
3: I don't know what I just saw. Me neither. In fact, I don't even want to know. And that like those that exchange, like that's that's the the manifesto for the entire film. I mean, that's like that's what the whole movie ultimately boils down to. But then we all make it about other stuff because we need it exactly. to be about that. Exactly. And it is about greed and it is about all these things. But it's like I'm, I have found myself going into his movies being like, I can't wait for this to be about the textual subject matter that it never is <laughs> it never, and I and it's is. like at
1: a certain point we have to stop asking it to be because I do think he finds these really interesting milieus and he soaks in them but then he uses them to tell I think ultimately very simple stories that I think almost always are just about like all you need is love because with any opening weekend you have the ads in your head and you know the trailers obviously yeah. are selling something different in this yeah. movie so if you're like oh am I seeing Lebowski am I seeing something that's a little more sure um, as opposed to this sort of meditation on you know time
6: totally and th- I mean that's what I think is so exciting about this this movie is is this feeling of like you get lost in just enjoying it and mm-hmm. and in enjoying the moments and you lose your footing amidst like all of the other things that are happening and and you know the the technical detective plot <laughs> like the the place in history that they're at and I think that in that sense like it is it is, as much as this movie is sort of a fantasy and psychedelic in its its ways, like it is extremely historically accurate to what it was like to be alive in Los Angeles in 1970. Mm. You know, in this moment um, with Nixon, as we see in this scene, but also after the Manson murders, um, after Altamont, like this feeling of, of and it's something, you know, Joan Didion used this phrase a few years previous to this, but this idea of like the center will not hold.
3: It feels like it's an astrological detective story. <laughs> it, it's this dreamy, like, you know, she talks about everything being in a fog in, in this sort of state, but it's like the movie kind of just wafts through itself. Because then when I did interview Paul Thomas Anderson, and it was something I remember he's, I heard him say multiple times when he was promoting the movie, was that he, for him, he had this feeling of giggle and give in, of just like, <laughs> sort of like, You're going to get a little lost. You're not going to totally get it, but like, just give yourself over
4: to it. It's about love, baby. It's like, it's, (laughs) it's one thing that you say quite a bit, but I would say to you that, you know, and to speak non-specifically, but about personal experiences, there are times where you've been to an ex or been with an ex and the person that you're being with in that moment is not that person. And the person that they're being with is also not that person. It is an idealized memory. It is like a Polaroid photograph. It's a sunny, sepia dream.
3: And I think it's fair to say that the A-plot of the movie that begins with Shasta and Wolfman is really about the destruction of a romance. This is kind of a great breakup movie, right? Where Shasta and Doc are in the middle of this breakup and they have complex feelings for one another. And they're kind of together, but they're kind of not. And they're kind of these orbiting phantoms where they come into each other's lives and they fall out of each other's lives and so on. So the A plot is the destruction of a romance, whereas the B plot that begins um, with the search for Owen Wilson's character is the reassembly of a romance and the reassembly of a family. I don't think it's a confusing movie at all. I think it's a... Bless you. uh... I mean, I think it's beautifully convoluted uh, in all just all the ways I love, but I don't think it's confusing, but I think probably people weren't willing to do the work um, also on some level to, you know, you either had to be just somebody who could let it wash over you, or if you were looking to to understand it in a certain way, then I think you probably turned off. Paul Thomas Anderson is unique in that, like, he's not only is he a technical like, virtuoso... As director, but he's a romantic and humanist. You know, like Hitchcock knew how to manipulate an audience. Like Paul Thomas Anderson knows how to use like all the elements of cinema to to make you feel
7: this kind of sadness and longing, emotionally meticulous. What I find so fascinating about the movie is, you know, the the Marlowe or the Sam Spade, you know, the Hammett or the Chandler, you know, that kind of tradition of the private detective thing. It's so based on words and information and exposition. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I can't think of a movie that depends on that, that detests exposition (laughs) more than Inheritance (laughs) does. It absolutely hates information. And you can see in the... The char- the actors, the characters, the movie itself, it tosses words away. It almost feels like you can feel almost a sense of disgust it has that it has to impart information to the audience through <laughs> words in a way because it's so rooted in poetry. And it's, mm-hmm. that's not saying it to its detriment. I think that actually makes it – that's part of what I think um, – I don't know, makes, makes PTA's movies – He's my favorite filmmaker working today and I think that's part of what makes his movies so special is the vision is that they're so rooted in um, I don't know poetry that kind of transcends words I think you know
0: with PTA I also have expectations and going into it I was like what is this going to be is this going to be his long goodbye and it's not that you know what I mean it's something else
3: I can understand your obsession with this now whereas I wouldn't have been able to I was saying before I this felt like a weird one to do a you know a minute by minute podcast initially in my mind when you first announced it now having watched it again and listened to a couple episodes it's like no this is kind of the perfect freewheeling there's there's no wrong answer movie there's a really extraordinary warmth i think and nostalgia uh, about it there's a term that's usually attached to longfellow's poetry i think uh, called acedia I, I think it's a It's it's just this idea of sort of this grand, romantic decay, and and there's a sense in the film that it, it feels lurid. You know, there's something lush and sultry about it's it and it, it, it feels like memories of the 70s in a in a way. Just because I think a lot of the movies from that era feel like that, but there's a there's there's a way that Anderson seems to impart in this film especially, a sense of real melancholy to the way that the film
0: is shot.
6: I I mean, I think sort of like the way that we can talk about this film in the context of what's happening now isn't necessarily like, oh, Inherent Vice predicted all of this. But I think just that like, when you are more engaged with the world around you, uh, I think that like the interpretations you can pull from any given well-made piece of art just become much more uh, complex and Sometimes like scary in ways that aren't fun to deal with, but I think that that's also like very necessary. The
3: Bigfoot secretly wants to be a hippie, and Doc secretly
4: wants to be a cop.
3: Doc is Doc is the closest you can be to being a cop without having the responsibilities of a cop, and also the the ability
0: to commit wanton, unnecessary violence, which which you know Bigfoot pretty much acknowledges. Like he wants to be a guy. He wants to be the kind of cop that people talk about. You know, like when they talk, when people sentimentalize police, Mm -hmm. which is the guy who helps people who are in trouble and helps solve
3: problems and finds people who are missing and stands up to powerful people on behalf of people who don't have any power. That's not really what the police do in this country. And Bigfoot represents what they actually do.
6: That's another, just there's so many, not to diverge even further, but there's so many just little lines like that that he delivers so convincingly and so but also so like unintentionally hilariously like the conviction when he says moto penacheco that's exactly he's so mean too he's so like rude to the guy like and the guy is like yeah yeah i know like he comes in there and he does this all the fucking time
0: he doesn't want it to
4: be too stuffy he wants to undercut the seriousness he wants it to be playful so it's not just with this specific movie he decided I, i need to have you know, the Zucker Abrams, you know, airplane energy in the margins. It's, I think that's something you can find running through his work. I was trying so hard to follow the plot that I I don't think I even really noticed the emotionality um, until I let go of the plot and
3: then I accessed the emotionality. And then a few watches later, I could circle back around to the plot
4: and connect it all.
7: The film is... I mean, the film is basically a journey through a bunch of different subcultures, right? Yeah. All these little communities, each of which is kind of this, its own subculture, its own ecosystem. And every time he goes into one of those places, it feels like he's going into something that's never going to change.
6: I've been interested in, and this is just something that just interests me in general, um, in studying how desire curdles and how it yeah. changes and how we lose it and how we hunger to kind of, replay the same mix of lust and romance sometimes that you can't really capture it's like that first high man i'm still trying to capture it but it's not happening
3: i mean that becomes your model though that you that you know to follow
6: exactly and i think that's what really captures me about this movie is its emotional bramble and how complicated it is in that way. That's what makes us doc when we watch it. Like that's one of the great tricks of it because he,
2: so therefore we think she's she's sort of the center of this,
6: mm-hmm. uh, and and then when he realizes that she's not or is not the thing he's going to you know with the scene we talk about is not the thing he's going to be able to do. That's I mean, that's
2: great because it's sort of we're at that moment too. Well then what are we gonna do?
0: <laughs> <laughs> By the way, is there is there a more twenty twenty question in this film than is there a swastika on that man's face? With the answer being perhaps you should pay no attention to that man? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so prescient. I actually see it as a, as a really uh, uh, hazy technicolor donor infused uh, D- uh, Dante's Inferno that he's going deeper wow. and deeper into these circles until until here, because you know you know it, it's he's you know going down to save uh, you know his love from this hell that she's willingly put herself in just like people who sin who, you know people who sin willingly send themselves into hell deeper and deeper. And so, Doc is sort of playing that Dante role where he's gotta keep going deeper and deeper and every level is more bizarre and darker until we reach Adrian Prussia.
0: What What's amazing about that scene, and I'm, I know you've done a whole episode dedicated to it, but like- We can like she keep just
3: going back, we can go
0: that, back. That, oh. that she just shows up. That he has, he has created this mythos that he is, like you're saying, a, a rescuer, somebody mm. who is searching and hunting, You don't, not for a person, but for this idea that he has lost. And then she just walks in the door because that's what people do. They can just walk through the door. They don't need you. They don't need you to find or seek or hunt. I wonder, you know, because the, you know, the sex scene that, that happens not quick, not soon before this or pretty soon before this is perhaps a breaking point then for Doc to, um, because he realizes what you everything you just laid out that he was pushing Shasta toward you know towards this damsel distress mode and that that's kind of his you know she reckons that uh, there's a reckoning there in that scene yeah. uh, from her and so perhaps it does give him the motivation then in this scene to kind of um, do everything he does because it's the first time we see him actually act like somewhat of a detective.
3: It starts with Shasta asking him to investigate her sex life, and mm-hmm. so. The whole movie is him basically being exposed to all these facets of her that he may not be able to
7: deal with. What I found with when I was looking around about all this is that I found a lot of people were sort of saying after the second or third time you've watched it, the fourth time all the jokes and all the subtleties start to flood in because you're stop being so suspicious or, or trying to keep <laughs> up with something that may not 100% be there.
3: There is no such thing as a grown-up. There is no such thing as a grown-up. We are all, every single person that goes into confession, and I would say a lot of people come to therapy, that's what you spot. You're like, yes, these are people that have grown-up suits on, but we're all these little kids. So the, the idea of little kid blues is even just specific to little kids. Like I know the grown-up version of what the little kid blues feels like. I remember feeling it as a kid, but I certainly know the adult version. Um, and it's a very specific feeling that I don't even think there's a great word for, but we all know what it is.
8: Well, even more so in the dialogue exchange, because you have, like, Joaquin, like, asking, like,
3: so justice was done. And then, you know, you have our attorney, Dr. Gonzo, just fluffing his
1: quote, the most sarcastic, <laughs> prick imaginable. Yes, justice was done. Yeah, sure.
3: <laughs> Doc is, is an avatar of that idea of these characters who are constantly trying to assert their want for the world, their vision for the world, their nostalgia for the world, upon a world that is crumbling like wet sand in front of them, which again really reasserts what a hauntingly sad film inherent vice can be, and not just the the Zucker brothers goofballery of the trailer and of some and, and some genuine moments in the film. Just a truly sad film about how the world will never comport to your need. For, for what you need it to be, that it is, a, it is truly a world ruled by inherent vice, and when you contextualize it by that, you begin to see that all of PTA's films, the driving force, the kind of the motor in all of them is the idea of, an, of a character versus the idea of inherent vice itself, and that that's the nuclear core kind of of a lot of his work. It's not just bad dads in the valley. No, it's not just bad dads in the valley, but bad dads in the valley works for that because there's that kernel of, uh, of guilt or regret or transgression that's kind of you know eating away at them from the inside. I mean, there's that line in Magnolia that, certainly not underquoted, in either <laughs> the movie or in studies of Anderson, but you know we may be through with the past, but the past isn't through with us.
2: And just like that, here we are at the end. One year, forty-five episodes, a whole lot of talking. At the end of Thomas Pynchon's novel, Inherent Vice, Doc finds himself alone in his car, no Shasta Fe to be found, driving along PCH and lost in a fog of the kind of density that only comes with lungs full of THC and a heart full of sorrow. Doc's been here before, and he's wondering if there's any more to be found on what Clancy Sherlock once called the Boulevards of Regret. In that ending... Pynchon wrote, maybe then it would stay this way for days. Maybe he'd have to just keep driving down past Long Beach, down through Orange County, and San Diego, and across the border where nobody could tell any more in the fog who was Mexican, who was Anglo, who was anybody. Then again, he might run out of gas before that happened, and to have to leave the caravan and pull over on the shoulder and wait for whatever would happen, for a forgotten joint to materialize in his pocket. For the CHP to come by and choose not to hassle him. For a restless blonde and a stingray to stop and offer him a ride. For the fog to burn off. And for something else this time, somehow, to be there instead. Whew! Don't say that guy can't write a great bummer of an ending. But as for us, what will we see tonight on the show as the fog clears one last time?
3: We've been here before, you and I. We've been here before. Me on this side of the mic and you on that side of your speakers or your headphones. Just like my guest and I have been here before. Me on this side of the screen and the world and he on that side of his. It's kind of like how Doc and Shasta have been here before. Alone together, as if they're the only two people left in the universe just like when we first met them all that time ago when she came along the alley and up the back steps like she always used to bringing with her the sinistral whirlpool of a mystery alloyed with love and regret for a wayward PI to lose himself in a case that began like all others with those five little words I need your help doc and it's just like When we saw them in Doc's journey through the past, running in the rain on that day when the Ouija board sure did its work, and they didn't score any dope that day, but it didn't matter, because they and no one else were there, the whole world fallen away. Just like when we saw them when Shasta returned, with more truth than Doc ever wanted to hear, but maybe needed more than anything to finally realize And however they may have ended up on the couch that night, it doesn't mean that they're back together. Just the two of them. Just like Shasta says tonight in our final scene. Just us. Together. Almost like being underwater. We've been here before, you and I. Doc and Shasta. But it feels a little different tonight. A little sadder, and maybe a little freer. And maybe that's been the point of all this all along. Just like how a man named Thomas Pinchon once wrote in a little detective novel of his a few years back, what goes around may come around, but it never ends up exactly the same place. You ever notice? Like a record on a turntable, all it takes is one groove's difference and the universe can be on into a whole nother song. And listening to that whole nother song, or is it really the same song? Is someone who returns to us now just as Shasta came to dock in the film's beginning, middle, and end, so too did our guest appear in Increment Vices' beginning and its middle and now at its end. The man behind such podcasts as One Heat Minute, The Last Twelve Minutes of the Mohicans, Miami Nice, All the President's Minutes. God, this guy loves a pun, doesn't he? And the producer and editor of this show, Increment Vice, the show that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time. Everyone, please welcome back to say hello and goodbye to Mr. Blake
4: Howard. Oh, you're very good at that. (laughs) I'm gonna miss listening to that. I'm gonna miss listening to your florid intros. They, they. I mean, I think we go tit for tat internationally on One Hit Minute Productions of who can do the most florid and uh, uplifting intros for our guests. And you are just you're special, bud. You are a special. You are a special one.
3: Listen to you. Thank you. Well, you know what. I am. I'm pretty adroit. I'm. I'm pretty gifted in that if if I do something forty five times in a row, <laughs> I I get moderately average at it. And so I appreciate you. I appreciate you noting that, and I appreciate you pointing that out in case anyone at home might have missed it. But really quick, now that I've, I've buttered you up, mm. and you've thrown a little bit back at me here, we need to take a moment. We're going to do something special. This is our last. This is our last hurrah. This well our last hurrah on increment vice this is our this is this is our last hurrah here and before we go any further i wanted to introduce someone to everyone Ooh. listening someone who without whom this show would not be this show correct the only reason we even seem semi professional and like a couple <laughs> of grown ups <laughs> and that would be our of liege, our narrator the the person and the persona and the voice that gives this show polish and makes it actually sound pretty damn sharp uh i would like to introduce to everyone miss Cat corbett a dj extraordinaire she was almost going to start talking but per usual i i, I just continued uh who <laughs> she's used to it uh who DJs for Sirius and K-Rock, she's amazing writer, and more than anything else, we're going to call her the capital V, the voice.
8: The voice of, of increment
3: life. Now, ladies and gentlemen, everybody say hi to Kat. Now, oh, can I
5: talk? Yeah, you're, no, allowed, to talk. Talk. <laughs> you're allowed to
3: talk. <laughs> Travis is done. You're allowed to talk.
5: This is so fun, and I really wish, like, anytime I walk into a room, you could just introduce me, like, that. If that could roll out beforehand, yeah. that would be amazing.
3: I, I missed my calling as a hype man. I think. Like long, <laughs> I think you long, did too. Long decades, <laughs> because I, 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 I think I could roll in, like, really, like. I think i make people feel good i should like i should like hawk myself at corporate
4: but it's like you're like about. the hype man at the club in inside lewin davis like you need that like it's like a poet <laughs> it's a poetry jam it's it's a bit it's a bit it's a bit pre dylan goes electric that's like it's a it's a mood it's a vibe and that's what cat sets for this show and that's what you set. like cat sets the vibe you maintain that vibe we introduce the guests everyone feels yeah. happy and everyone's ready and just lulled into this like all right let's let's talk some vice
5: well yeah. if i can say anything first that you know i'm reading the words that travis writes and i know you spend time toiling away and going crazy every single week to get it yes. right and you know we started at the beginning with like these pages and pages which i was happy happy to narrate um and you just, you know, we started getting to the nugget of, of things and it really evolved into something amazing. So it, it's been a privilege to be the sort of liege, if you will, and, oh. and read these words.
3: Well, thank you, Kat. I really appreciate it. And I must I and like, you and then you were uh, a pain
5: in the ass with the recording, but I mean, well, you know.
3: <laughs> I, I like, I like things that sound a certain way. Um, no, no. Uh, <laughs> I I, I like how Kat frames my increasing laziness as me getting to the nugget of something where she's like, originally, the intros were so long, and then they got shorter and shorter, when it was really just me getting more and more tired of writing them going, ah, two sentences is good enough. No,
5: I think think production-wise, it is that thing of you learn sometimes less is more, and people want to get to your guest and what you're discussing uh, of each episode and i think we finally found the perfect balance of length of narration wow. into the show.
3: Yes, that's true. Maybe no, I was going to say uh in terms of that less is more. I think i'm still not i'm still figuring that one out for the actual hosting part oh, with God, my, as wow. we as we heard with that 45 minutes. <laughs> <intro>. Um <laughs> hey, you know, hey, 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 the people pay for this. Kat. this is what they're paying <laughs> This is 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 this the, the And chit- thanks
5: cat. to the people for doing that.
3: Anyway. Um, uh, but yeah i just i just wanted people to meet you and actually hear you for real and go yeah her her voice really is just that cool like the the, the, the this is cat like she just has the voice
4: she's and got the voice
3: i also wanted to say that in all seriousness uh cat really really has saved our asses on multiple occasions and given us so much wisdom and and like uh, training on and
4: tech- found and foundational technical support. Oh, because oh our because our gracious host is a phenomenal writer, is an incredibly focused interviewer, and is one of the most insightful film minds in the world. But this guy cannot plug a fucking USB in. <laughs> Yeah, he is yeah. out of control like tech he's scared he can play a record he can put a blu-ray on you know plug in a television you ask him to plug in a microphone he's not very equipped cat has been so amazing to help like getting trav technically proficient and then as a producer we came up with this show this is a little bit of behind the scenes when we came up with the show it was ne- it was beyond our wildest dreams that we would re- ever have recording spaces that would you know be professional you know you're often sort of it, it takes time to get the right mics and the right setups in your home studio my home studio is taking me over a year to build to get get where it is and Kat has been so amazing and supportive and helped uh, especially in the beginning of the show orchestrate some great interviews that were face to face in like professional spaces that sound amazing so uh, it's it like the the show was defined by this mood and this sound and and cat's been a huge part of that so thank you so much from from me too, cat you i mean of course. it's a pleasure it's a pleasure to pull it all together
5: I feel, you know, I feel comfortable in a studio. I've been in one most of my life. So, um, you know, that stuff is easy for me and it really, uh, lent a legitimacy. I know everyone has a podcast and, you know, doing something like this, you know, at first people might've been like, what, you know, and then <laughs> I <think they> <laughs> we, we got them into our, our, you know, real studios. And, and it really just, um, hit home as to how serious, uh, you know, we all were doing this. So yes. um, it was really fun. And, you know, Travis, it was it was interesting to teach someone new because I hadn't done that in so long about, you know, being behind a board. Um, and as far as, you know, mics go and levels go, because it's a, it's a real soundboard It's crazy. You know, it's not just a podcast mic. And Travis stepped up and he just like took it all in and he got comfortable. I, I know it's hard to do that, be in a headspace. And be in a strange room, and he really did it.
3: Weirdly, I just remember crying and asking you to tell me where to put my hands at all times. I time. was
5: trying to make you uh, sound heroic, but yeah, uh, you did kind of cry.
3: Uh, <laughs> and uh, but but yeah, you for everyone listening, Cat is a, a humongous reason why the show has ever sounded good <laughs> it Thank sounded you. clear yeah. it is, it is because of kat and because of her expertise and, and what she was able to provide and what she was able to show us and teach us and again i, I as blake says, i don't know how to plug in a fucking usb cable <laughs> um and so just in a monumental help but i also i also had to throw out there that uh probably one of our most popular episodes if not most popular is the episode in which director ryan johnson came on and <laughs> oh, God. that was maybe yeah. i had to say as a guest he was a joy he was one of the shockingly the easiest people to book like no problem whatsoever he literally just ambled to the studio one day uh with, with his partner who was also a guest on the show and just just said hey can i come on it was that easy problems developed however when we decided to record his episode the day the saturday before LA went into total quarantine back in March, and that night, the night feels like a lifetime ago. super late at night on a Friday night, we found out we lost our studio space because everything got shut down. Everything got shut down. I'm panicking. I have no idea what I'm gonna tell Ryan because I wanted something. You know, we could obviously we could we could Skype it out or whatever, but I really. You're getting Ryan Johnson. You wanted you want to sound nice and you want to have like an experience. And I wanted to touch his hair. And, <laughs> in, in oh his, and his, in like the the, the chunky cable of his sweater that you knew he was going to wear because this is the man behind Knives Out. And so mm-hmm. a cat, at like literally with no time to prep, whips out her cell, cell phone and just starts making things happen. And next thing you know, Saturday morning to speak to Ryan Johnson about the scene in which doc and Shasta run with Neil Young playing on the soundtrack cat booked us in the studio in which Neil Young recorded his very first solo record. Like that's, that's, that's where we did it on a, on a very rainy and cold and weird Saturday morning. We recorded the Neil Young episode in Neil Young studio. And that is entirely entirely due to cat
8: so let me
5: tell you my side because when i found (laughs) (laughs) because when i found out that the studios we normally used were in lockdown i mean i was just like holy shit like i did not want to make that (laughs) phone call to (laughs) you that was like the worst possible thing because obviously ryan johnson is a big and important guest and um so I, I know when I I had to tell you just while I was working in the background and I could hear in your voice this utter just despair and panic uh, you know all together. And, and here I'm um, thinking like
3: I think I took it pretty well. I was being really cool, really calm. You you
5: were, but I, it was a, it was a hard call to make to you. Yeah. And um and and I'd like to thank my friend Wally at Wax Studios, who is a fantastic yeah, you know, you, songwriter and producer. Um Legend. and he, and and frankly, honestly, I wasn't even thinking Neil Young at the time. Like, I'm just great friends with Wally. And I was like, dude, I need a studio. Can you like, you know, do you, are you open on Saturday? Can, can I get in there? And he's like, yeah, no problem. And then, you know, then we could go down that rabbit hole, but it didn't even occur to me at the time. And so now, I mean, so when that happened and we realized the Neil Young connection and that Ryan was such a huge music fan and, and looked at all of the albums that had been produced in that studio space, like what it did to him. He got so excited and so relaxed and it was so like he was just even more fun than I think we should have had you know
3: yeah and i think he was definitely relieved that we were real people in a studio and that we weren't gonna like hack him to pieces in a garage somewhere <laughs> well, there's that. When yeah. you're told, you want to come talk about that- inherent vice you want to you want to come over you want to do that and so i think right. he was he was quite relieved to still be in a professional space where he would he would actually be able to be seen again um but yeah that that's that, just- that
4: episode has some of the, the entire series is best ball busting it's one of the funnest. Yeah,
3: we really. Kind of started you guys were just each
4: busting each other's balls, having a great time. You know, that's that's where the well, show really shines. Well, you know, I,
3: I I had to come heavy. I was like, well, you might have directed a Star Wars, but I got a <laughs> podcast about inherent rice <laughs> body. I mean, I'm not
8: sweating it either. I'm try trying. sitting,
5: try sitting like four feet away and like. Oh God. That not was so trying laughing. to hold it together. Trying to oh, hold it God. together. I definitely I'm... almost blew my brains out because I was like holding it all in. Yeah. <laughs> but that's
3: yeah, great. that was that was the the last fun thing I did pre pre-pandemic, is we spent a Saturday hanging out at the studio where Neil Young, the Velvet Underground, and Jimi oh. Hendrix all recorded records. We went into the recording rooms, we looked at the guitars, and just just that was just, it was a it was just like one of those miraculous, kind of inherent vicey type moments where things got heavy, we didn't know what we were gonna do, and all of a sudden, like it was meant to be, Karma just smiled on us and said, we'll go to Neil Young's studio. That's where, we'll go. that's where we'll go for this scene. But my point being, that kind of thing would not have happened had Kat not so ably stepped up to the plate and saved our asses uh, once that's again. What you, that's what <laughs> you again. do,
5: guys. You know that. The show must once go again. on. We the can, we'll show
3: get it done.
4: must go on.
5: Yes.
3: So yes. I, I I, will say from the bottom of my heart, Kat, I so appreciate everything you've done for this show. All of the last minute copy that you have read as i send it to you in a flurry the day of a show <laughs> i so so appreciate your patience and everything you've done and again to everybody listening anytime you've thought well this show sounds pretty good uh anytime you you've wondered like how how did they do that nine times out of ten it's because uh i called cat in a panic and she's like yeah dude give me like five minutes and all right. Well, let's all we let's all
5: also, also give Blake the uh, production uh, credit that he's. Oh, due.
3: Kat, did you not hear that forty-five minute intro? I did. <laughs> I heard it, but
5: you know, I and I've I. got an just... outro
3: plan
4: too. He's not done. <laughs> we're not,
3: we're, I'm not done with. I'm not done
4: and with. And actually, this. if people are listening, there's already been a twenty-minute introduction of the best bits of the show. <laughs> so they're, <laughs> oh they're getting into this. They're this getting into this. Four we're four about it. We're at we're, we're about thirty-five minutes in so far. You know, like people have heard some of that. So I don't need any more. Thanks. I didn't. All know. right. Well, look. I was just congratulatory podcast episode. I
5: know <laughs> it, it was just uh, in closing. I would just like to say it was an honor to be a part of this. It's so nice to do something you know so original and so out there, and to kind of slip into the voice of a sore leash, you know, the Joanna Newsom type of vibe <clears throat> was really fun. And so, uh, yeah, I was thrilled to do it. So, I'm really sad now. Oh my god.
4: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
3: I know. Um, well, we're, we're no, don't, 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 no, no, we're not going to go down. I was going
4: to say, don't, 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 don't. We're all going to be nope, a, a nope, rollicking hot nope, mess. Nope, at every nope, point nope. of this show today.
3: All right, Kat. I, again, I just have to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. It's wonderful to see your face. I miss it. Same here. So, so and, great um, to see your face. Yeah. Kat. Thank you for oh coming. Goodness, on. and thank you for everything for absolutely everything you've done. It will not be forgotten.
5: Thank, thank you, you guys. You know, I mean, normally I get asked to do stuff and then I'm like, why did I do that?
8: <laughs>
5: so, <laughs> so uh, thank you Increment Vice team. I'm in. Oh, so, um you, have Kat. a great rest of your last episode.
4: Mwah. It's mwah, been amazing. Mwah, mwah, mwah. Mwah. You're the best.
5: See ya. Bye cat.
4: See you. Bye. Oh
3: boy. And now it's just the two of us Blake. Just you and Oh. Here we are, right back Just where you and me now, sport. Just right. you and me. Wrong podcast, buddy. Uh,
4: <laughs>
3: but uh, here we are, just like Doc and Shasta, right back where we started. It's been a year, the mm. same length of time between when Shasta left off for her dreams and then returned to his doorstep with those five little words, a year. And what a banner year. For the Golden Fang, it's been, you know, <laughs> the Golden what,
4: Fang yeah, are this has been crushing it. Yeah, yeah it's this year. has
3: been the Fangs' year. Really has, you know. We were supposed to end this series, you and I, sitting on the shore of Manhattan Beach, recording with a few drinks and joints and the sound of the waves in the background. That was the initial idea. So, hey, well, it's the original the plan. On the beach, you and me, because uh, you were going to come out to LA and hang. And, I had uh, planned.
4: I had planned a bumper U.S. trip. It was going to be two two weeks in L.A. with you and I plotting at secret projects, which we won't mention. Um, and and, uh, and then a couple of weeks on the East Coast. Place. And uh, no, uh, definitely not.
3: But in a way, again, that's very vice-appropriate. In that we had these plans, we had these things we wanted, we had the way we wanted life to go, and the golden fang showed up. And again, once again, quote man. <laughs> pta they came and they just fucked it up for the good guys and that's what the fang did and <laughs> here we are i what, what's left to say 45 45 episodes deep we've, we've done this for a year normally normally i start by going back as you know as you've been the the unwilling witness to every single episode of this very show. willing very uh,
4: willing witness
3: normally i go back to a guest's first time with inherent vice but we've already Mm -hmm. gone back to your first time with this movie we've gone Mm -hmm. back to your for we did that on your first time with this podcast so instead we're gonna get an update we're gonna get an update from you Mm -hmm. now that we're here at the film's epilogue and we're cruising down pch in that cotton candy fog as you begin to try to let the film go i don't know if i ever really will but as you now start to let the film go how has it changed for you from that first viewing 6 years ago up to right now in this minute how's it changed for you
4: oh it's it's completely it's it's so enriched by literally every conversation and it doesn't happen to me where I go and watch the whole film again but i you know, even as, even as recent as the episode with you and Adam, there was a synchronicity in the scene and then a synchronicity in your last dialogue together where you guys were both kind of doing these beautiful, like interconnected points. And then I would go back and I, I literally watched that scene where doc and Bigfoot confront one another for the last time. I watched it like 25 times. <laughs> um, I think what, like, cause I just kept what watching I, I I watched it so many times again because I just was I was marveling at the depth of these things and 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 even C J as one of our last guests on the show too he he mentioned like you know the fourth time being the magic time like, like yeah. there's a magic sweet spot where you the movie's not trying to trick you anymore so you can kind of relax into its vibe and I would just say that it is just this effortlessly rich thing you know so what I kept seeing in this is a confidence and a competence from a filmmaker and a mastery of, of basically effortlessness that I couldn't have fathomed. Like the first time I'm like, this is my kind of movie, you know, this is my kind of scene. Like I'm, I, I'm in, I I loved it. It's definitely something that always enraptured me enough to like when it was on in any way, shape or form, I would watch the whole thing. Um, but you know, my most recent whole viewing, like I was away with my, my family. I, I was watching it with my wife and I, you know, I was trying to do other things. I put this on much in the same way as I do all of my favorite films. Cause I'm like, I love this. I want it to be the white noise of all the things I was doing. <laughs> and what, what, what I was completely wrong at is that that's a trap door. You put it on and you stop doing the chores. You stop doing the things, the yep. tinkering around the yeah. space you need to do. Same. And you just sit down and start watching the movie again. Um And so, yeah, I, that's how it's different. And I think for everyone who's been listening along to the show and we've got so many incredible supportive fans and I've received so much incredible, you know, me, I know it must be overwhelming for you, but almost every other podcast that I, you know, do, and I'm on a lot, um, a lot of, everyone mentions income advice, everyone mentions it and, um, they, uh, they, they, it holds a special place for them. And we've had such phenomenal, I mean, b- both of our current shows at the moment, President's Men and Increment Vice, I just look at the rosters and I'm completely staggered every time. Um, and yeah, that that's how it's changed for me, Trav. It's, it's grown in my conceptions. It's grown as a piece of work. And I think that it's really helped me sort of understand about, there are some works that are, I guess what you would call like <coughs> classical masterworks where you, they're, they're pretty flashy, you know? like the the flashiest of all like citizen kane like it's flashy as all hell right like formalist as a formalist work as a as a statement as a performance as you know every every conceivable metric you would say that movie you know excels but it's 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 you know it it kind of insists that it is doing those things and this is a much more like it's it's a work that almost like glacially consumes you and I found that so much. And now when I watch it, I feel like I immediately, I'm tipping myself into its portal. It has me. That's, it, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. And even the scene that we're talking about today, I watched it again with like such a tone of melancholy this oh, time, yeah. knowing that this is going to be our time, of, our last time talking about it and the last time for the show. Cause it's been, you know, you record during the week in the States. And then on a Friday night, I literally, yeah, I bought myself a cognac. i have a a cuban cigar and i sit down and i edit the show and i get inspired by it and i kind of organically like think of sound drops and cues based on what you and the guests are talking about or inspirations from my own life and my own music library that i think oh this would be a great way and i kind of just like design this thing and yeah i watched this final scene and i was just absolutely devastated and so yeah it's it's a incredible film and i think that for every hour that i've edited and listened to it it's been wonderful and i'm so glad it's one of those things i'm so glad that i insisted that you do it and insisted you do it when you did it because it is a phenomenal document of this film a phenomenal document of this time and um yeah i just it's it's been a joy
3: thank you buddy and uh Couple things, really quickly, little bits of housekeeping. That very, very wonderful response. The first would be, yes, Citizen Kane. I've read on Film Twitter that that's supposed to be a good movie. we will check it out. <laughs> check um, it out. I will, yeah. Uh, it, it, also, to I, I, you know, you were talking about you know editing and dropping in audio bits and things like that. Just in case, just just also in case people did not know. Blake does all of that. Any any audio cutting, any any drops you hear, sound effects. Whenever I say Vincent and Delicato, that horn well, you heard, bum, 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 yeah, <laughs> that horn you just heard, that's Blake <laughs> popping that in because he loves when I mention Vincent and Delicato, a <laughs> character who never shows up in the film, but I spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about <laughs> But just, just lest anyone think that I actually do any real work for this show, as you wrote me <laughs> tonight, it's literally all Blake and all Cat. And then I just show up and jib-jab for like two hours to some some guest who agreed to come on and talk about this movie.
4: Completely wrong. What Travis is completely lying about is that he's one of the most fastidiously and crazily prepared podcast host you've ever seen in your life that's why he sounds so great on one heat minute that's why we developed a great friendship that's why i entrusted him with what was the almost pinnacle minute of the entire show you know he was the lead-in batter to michael mann only a few episodes later on one heat minute so hence why I i knew that he would be phenomenal for this show travis prepares with an inch of its life and basically, you know, where he says that he has writer's block for other projects. he's essentially written an entire essay on every problem. I would love to see his raw notepads of like every single scene that he's probably written an essay on to make sure that he's, he's kind of done that as well as preparing really rigorously for each guest. Sometimes people who've written entire books that he's read in preparation for the show before it and slept not very much to do so. So I just get, like I said, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm Mr. Marvin. Course, and I just come in here and I just enjoy <laughs> my time. Um, and uh, you know, if I could, if I could open the studio door and have and actually have a cigar. And in fact, a few times through the journey, I have had a cigar after editing an episode, as opposed to during. But yeah, I definitely sit here with a cheeky, uh, you know, spiced uh, rum beverage often, and um, and you know, and uh, and I edit the episodes, and and Travis is so prepared that it's just easy for me to kind of do do these great cuts and and have and have a really good time. Bringing the whole mood together, and Cat's voice is like she's our, you know, she's the appetite that everyone sort of gets in the mood for, and then we just, you know, here's the main meal that that comes out.
3: I love that we're just gonna spend this whole episode talking about how great we all are. Yes, it's it's, it's time. It's time. I'm in. You know, it's, it's time. time. <laughs> but, okay. You know what? We're actually we are gonna we're we're actually gonna talk about Inherent Vice a little bit. Uh, Let's do that. You know, that's where you land with the movie now, and I, and I was really thinking about it. You know, I, I was. I sat down to watch the final scene last night. And instead I just, I hit play and I watched the thing from top to bottom. I just decided, you know, last time around I'll just watch the movie as a whole even -hmm. though I do that quite often. Anyway, um, I decided i will do it one more time just to lead into our scene. And, you know, I began began this show with a kind of twin thesis uh, that A, not only is it not the inexplicable mess that so many people have disregarded it as—it's mm. actually a goddamn masterpiece. Yes. And B, and B, now brace yourself, babies, because I know you've heard this so many times before. But <laughs> once more into the breach, dear friends, we're going to do this together. My argument that poor Pinchung, inherent vice, the book was a look back over his shoulder, from the time of its publication in 2009, back those halcyon sun hammered days of socal in 1970 a time and a place in which our reclusive author lived and was roughly the same age as doc he did so in order to examine the broken promise of a hopeful generation this the schismal moment when everything in the american fate seemed to sour and the sweet heady period that apexed with the summer of love slowly sloughed into this bloody and despondent winter of never-ending discontent and Pinchon achieved this look back through Doc's interactions and interrogations with all the similarly lost souls of the time, all while using Doc's painful heartbreak and longing for his beloved ex-old as this subtextual metaphor for Pinchon's own soul stung search for meaning. But, but the miracle of the movie, the miracle of the movie to me, and this was my my big thesis, is that for Anderson, for Paul Thomas Anderson, the crucial resonance of Inherent Vice, it's not the failed hopes of the free love years but rather Pinchon's background metaphor of lost love and the director PTA's extraordinarily grandiose romanticism it inverts the thematic structure of the story of the novel so that subtext is made text and Doc's odyssey becomes that of a man sifting through the clues at the murder scene of a wayward generation to relocate the love of a woman he has lost. The book might be a lament for the 1960s, but as we have said so many times before and I'm going to say one more time tonight, the movie it. it's about love, baby. Yes. It's about love. That's what this movie is and it uses the the subtext of a broken-hearted man crumbling beneath the weight of a of a lost woman or and his relationship with her. That becomes, that doesn't, that's not subtext in this movie. It, it inverts it. Now that, 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 and everyone's heard that. Everyone's heard me say that. That, sorry, I just had to do it one more time. That is why I wanted to do the show. I wanted to make that argument for people who had not given the film a chance. And just for people who actually agree and like the movie and wanted to hear that there was one other psycho out there that loved the movie as much as they do. I wanted to give them a pound to listen to. Them. That's why I did it. And same as the essay, I wrote, essay that I wrote for Bright Wall, Dark Room at the time, it's to prove, and show, and make the case that this film is something special, and it is. But now, a year later, what I found is that it's so much more than that. That mm. argument now, I, I go back and I, I think about that argument, that 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 big. Uh, monolithic monologue that I just gave just now, and it seems so naive, and it seems kind of black and white, and not as interesting to me anymore, because the movie is so much more than that, and that's that's what I've come to learn. It's not just about loving someone so goddamn much that it cracks your heart, although it's part of it. It's about time, and how time goes bad, and how it can let the inherent vice curdle. But inherent vice of life curdle all that time touches, whether it's a love of a person or a life or a country, it's about good and evil and how at best there can only be a draw between the two. And how it's about how those golden-hued forces of evil, when given enough power, can be like a plague loosed upon the world, a plague of pain and sickness and bad cops and corrupt presidents making that world a place where the only certainty is that you can never insure against it, a world of inherent vice. And it's a movie about how, despite all of that, despite knowing to a certainty that you will lose, that as of all people, Bigfoot, Bjornson himself says, sometimes it's just about doing the right thing. That's what inherent vice is about to me now. No matter what, no matter the cost. That while this weary world may prevent our happiness, it may prevent our dreams from coming true. It doesn't prevent you from doing one good thing as long as you're willing to try. And my God, that's it's it's so much more than those things too. But it that's that's what the movie is to me, and that's for me. That's been the journey. It's like me starting with my argument. Oh, it's about love. It's about a it's about a boy and a girl. And how they need to get back together. And slowly but surely, it became, as, as, as cheesy as this sounds, <laughs> it became a movie about everything. And I think, yeah. despite their length, despite the length of the other films in his oeuvre, I think it is PTA's only film that is genuinely about everything. This is a movie yes. about what it is to be alive. And that, I didn't know it at the time, that is why I love Inherent
4: Vice. Yeah, I think two two things. I'm going to quote a poet by the name of Shane Black. Uh, Nobody likes you. Everyone hates you. You're going to lose. Smile. You fuck is I very much. Say every morning. Say is, it every morning. Is, in the <laughs> is a mantra that this movie lives by. But also, it's like sometimes the you know you called it like a schism, like that that schism of time and the time that we're in, just talks about you know the. it's it's the same thing that Robert Town talked about with Chinatown. You know, it's the Chinatown state of mind. It's that the world is corrupt, and you only have to sort of it's not there's no excavation. Uh, required to see this subterranean world that these bad things are happening, and that's kind of a laughable thing. Even five years ago, when this movie came out, of like, isn't this a funny paranoid little thing where all of these golden fang activities are happening so blatantly right out there in the open? And I think that that's the beauty of both Chinatown and and, and movies like Inherent Vice. It's like the the inherent corruption of the world and these and these forces and the choice. For you to face into them by just doing one good thing at a time um, has never been more powerful and potent and resonant than right now. And so I think that you know we stumbled into this schism. That is, it, it is like uh you know, the experience of people saying, "Oh, I'm a sister city." We're, we're we're talking about we're talking about relationships through time and fraternity through periods in time. And, and I think that you know that that eclipse of 69 to 70 and the eclipse of 2019 to 2020 has been an unbelievable, um, uh, an unbelievably turbulent moment in history that you cannot even fathom that you'll understand completely as, we're, as it's unfolding. It's something that we all know that we're going to reflect on and talk about for probably decades to come. But I think that this movie is, it, it, it you know, it is truly, it wasn't ahead of its time. It was exactly on time but like so many great pieces of art um people people missed how poignant and how you know how perfect and potent it was at at the moment that it was released and i think it's like it's taking a little bit of time to earn its vintage and now when you crack this great bottle open or you roll this particular brand of weed into a, a ginormous spliff to smoke on it and to toke it it's 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 magnificent
3: yeah, I mean it's kind of a drag that uh, democracy has to be brought to its knees for a lot of people to realize. <laughs> oh shit, this movie's onto something. But yeah, like you said, you know, you said it wasn't ahead of its time; it's just of its time. And I think you know that's been a thread that has been weaving its way through this podcast, certainly since uh, this summer, uh, which, and this feels like ten years ago, but this summer when there was rioting across the country, and certainly in my city of Los Angeles. And I remember. I can't you know i can't remember the the first guest who said this so my apologies if i'm attributing it to the wrong person um but our good friend anna who came on for the episode in which doc and company get pulled over by a shaky lapd cop you know one of the things we talked about is it's not that Pinchon is so brilliant that he could predict what life would be like 50 years in the future from 1970 to 1920 and then replicate that and that he could Or that that, not that he wrote this in 1970, but like even in 2009 that he could predict where we would be in 2020. It's that that his genius is the recognition that it's just that nothing's changed. Yes, that 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 essentially at its core, America is the same. Very ill mindset and country that it was in 1970 and he he was able to recognize that and incorporate that into this novel so the reason that this novel uh and and the reason that this film the reason that they feel so resonant now is not because they were made relatively recently the novel in 20 uh, 2009 and the the film in 2014 it's that it just doesn't change and that is one of the that is one of the the major elements that i don't think the either the film or the book gets credit for is how life is like a record. It keeps just spinning around to the same place again. And all the most that you can hope for is that maybe it, it skips into a different groove and things get a little better each time out. But the, for the most part, things keep coming back around to the same place again, just like doc and Shasta, that we keep seeing them in the same ways alone together, just like you and I, once again, here we are, getting <laughs> middle and end of this podcast, staring at each other, talking about a movie. And That that idea is just that's just again we're talking about no surprise we're talking about why inherent vice is good on an inherent vice podcast that is one (laughs) of the many marvels of this film that you know I think was so so unheralded and unrecognized when it came out and people were either like "It's kind of funny but not as funny as it should be or holy shit this is a really depressing movie and that is the saddest sex scene I've ever seen in my life I don't (laughs) understand what this is and then there was the one percent of people like you and I that were like my god the veil had been pulled from my eyes and I'm seeing god the thing that was so missed though is is that idea of how how neatly and accurately and sadly, it captures what life can be at any time period. Mm. 1970, mm. 2020, 2009, 2040 doesn't matter. It is so big. And the ideas and the feelings that it encompass, and this is what I was trying to say earlier, are so life-spanning and culture-spanning that with the right kind of eyes and the right kind of ears, it's impossible to watch this movie and not go, well, Jesus, that's just life, isn't it? That's exactly yeah. what it is. And. That's it.
4: It's, it's the quandary the American experience, right? Like, I, I think that that's what I get to say as an outsider is, you know, um, funnily enough, a filmmaker who is nothing like PTA, but um, uh, nonetheless sort of infamous for his own little oeuvre of films, Sam Peckinpah, who I know you admire as well. Um I, I recently, I, I recently, I recently watched uh, one of his films that was. Uh, recovered in 2005 has now been put on home entertainment for the first time called major Dundee. And I watched his extended cut. And what's really interesting about major Dundee, if you've never ever heard of it, it's a very interesting watch stars Charlton Heston as like a uh, essentially like a, a soldier in in uh, the Yankee forces in the from the north um, at the tail end of the Civil War, who's a jailer and he's um, operating close to the southern borders of Mexico, and he's imprisoned a whole bunch of you know soldiers from the south. Uh, you know you've got uh, Negro soldiers who fought with the um, the the, um, uh, the the northern forces and sort of uh, uh, you know uh, Indian forces, American Indian forces who are sort of like uh, you know sort of freelancing if you like is probably the best way to describe them working for him and he ends up building this band of you know this misfit band to go and chase down uh, a, a comanche tyrant who's essentially just sort of um uh, pillaging a whole swath of country down there and they have to go into mexico to find him and fight him and what is interesting about the makeup is you have this incredible tension of ideas and uh ideologies that are in those groups that are still so incredibly resonant and these are portraying soldiers of post-civil war tension of like different ideologies incredibly divided you sort of european americans you've also got the native cultures there you've also got the the you know the, the spanish populated you know cultures you've you've got um you know african americans who are now like tenuously free is probably the best way to probably talk about it and what i was watching and i was like the dynamics here especially in soldier encampments you see them in inherent rice you see them in the thing john carpenter's the thing from 82 like you see them sprinkled through these tensions and and the straight-faced uh i guess candid you know differences between these people that they are constantly contending with and so that's what I think is great about this movie that was absolutely dismissed on its initial release is, you know, when you've got, when you've got, we have got his technically Jewish, but also wants to be a Nazi. Like I know that that has been joked about, but it's like, there are the same sort of quandaries that are happening right now in the American experience. There's the same sort of like, strange things that are happening and you're like you couldn't write you couldn't and couldn't be clever enough to write how stupid this the, our contemporary time is like he's like no I'm, I'm already being extreme but it, that's what you see um you see here and when you talk about these echoes you know this scene here I mean I, I don't know like just to anchor it back to the scene itself one of the most famous endings to almost any movie ever is another, there's a film from 1976. Um, it's, it's a uh, uh, sorry, 75. It's a little film called uh, 76, 75 um, called taxi driver. Um, and the final scene of the movies uh, stars a guy, you might've heard of him. I've spoken about him a couple of times on one, eight minute productions, Bobby De Niro. Um, and he's a uh, good mate at the time, Martin Scorsese uh, uh, directing one of his first, one of his early movies, I think it's about his fourth. Um, and he's in the front of a cab, and Sybil Shepherd gets into the back of the cab, and he's had a sort of searches. Uh, John Ford searches ending, you know, where he's done his one good thing. This twisted weirdo has done his one good thing by murdering a bunch of pimps um, and and hangers-on to rescue Jodie Foster's young child prostitute. And he's now recovered after shaving his head um, and doing his thing and potentially threatening that he's going to kill a politician Um, and all those fun things that our friend Travis Bickle does. And at the end of that movie is one of the most dynamically edited, ambivalent and creepy and sticky endings of any movie ever made. Sticky in that it sticks with you long after viewing and decades in fact after your first viewing and I was watching this scene again now and this kinship of these weird characters who do this perverse or not so perverse one good thing depending on what you determine is their one good thing being put up to assassinate uh, a political inf- a p- police informant and someone who's been doing <laughs> the the dirty work of the LA uh, the LA uh, police department um, by another cop who wants to get him out of his hair or reuniting a family and kind of both because that's that quandary. Um, and I just c- was completely struck by, you know, uh, for a guy who clearly loves um, Martin Scorsese uh, in and particularly says that, you know, Boogie Nights is a complete ripoff of <laughs> you know, Scorsese's work. Um, it's for a movie that feels so Altman, it trails off and has this Scorsese-esque coda and I watched it 20 freaking times. And then I went and watched the end of taxi driver in preparation for our discussion and then came back and watched it again. And, um, there's such a deep ambivalence, um, and, and very candid, uh, well, you know, um, uh, hopelessness or if you like that ends this movie that, um, I can definitely see why it people the wrong way. Um, And so, yeah, I, I don't know. I, this is. I was so thrilled that we, we, when you decided that you wanted me to be the final person to talk to, because I thought, wow, there's maybe not a more interesting moment in this entire movie than this scene.
3: Hopelessness. Okay, we have. We're not going to get into the minute just or the scene. I'm reverting to one heat minute here. We're not going to (laughs) get into the scene just yet. But hopelessness, Blake. No, 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 honey, no. Before we do that, really quick, I just want to say that uh, one of the gifts of this show is having guests on like Blake, who, when talking about Inherent Vice, will draw lines from Sam Peckinpah's director's cut of Major Dundee to John Carpenter's The Thing, back to Scorsese's taxi driver, weaving a lattice that he will then overlay upon Inherent Vice, to to mark out all these uh, little connections and constellations that are in the film. I, and I just, I, I, I adore shit like that. I will say though, I would, I would also put Travis Bickle's one good thing in quotes around one yeah, good thing. Yeah. I, he, I think, only I think the inference is because he couldn't kill a presidential <laughs> candidate. And so he decided to kill a pimp instead. Uh, the,
4: the, the inference was a uh, quotation marks, uh, uh, the, but this is not a video podcast. So people may sure, not have been sure. able to see that
3: uh before we get into the scene proper because i have some things to say about people who call this ending hopeless and uh you got uh i just want to say my god one of my favorite things about this show and we're doing a lot of kind of retrospective chit chat here so uh bear with me uh dear listeners uh one of the one just one of the things i'm proudest of of this show and one of the things i've enjoyed the most about this show is our wonderful series of guests um and it's another thing that has really taught me about this film and also film in general. And I feel like this is something that should be super obvious, but I'm a person that I just walk around with blinders on most of the time, you know, thinking about all the dumb stuff that I think about, and I'm not thinking about this um, is that um, our guests have provided an unexpected and unintended bit of magic for me that I, I, I did not see coming when I started the show and it never occurred to me that it would happen. And it's, it's that they would not only come with their own interpretations, but their interpretations would open up my own and would challenge my own and change my own and strengthen my own. Just as Doc basically spends the film in this very Joan Didion-esque, we tell ourselves stories in order to live, style conversations with the lost souls of 1970, so too have I sat here with guests some 50 years later and we've told ourselves stories and interpretations in order to live through this rotten and terrifying year, stories and interpretations about inherent vice. And sometimes we throw them far afield to things like Major Dundee or The Thing or The Taxi Driver. And I'm sitting here waiting excitedly to see how are they gonna connect this? How are they gonna make, make this a, a cohesive thought that I'm gonna take with me the next time I watch this film that I adore and how it's gonna change how I watch this film that I adore. You, me, all these guests to quote, uh, Quote Bodie from Point Brank We've shared time, and (laughs) sharing that time has made me. And you can pull your eyes if you want, anyone out there, but uh, has made sharing that time has has made me a better person and it's made me a better viewer, and 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 incredibly important to me. It's made Inherent Vice such a better film Mm. to me. Because it's shown me how much it can contain. because now it does inherent, inherent vice. Now it doesn't just carry the meaning that I always argued that it contains. And it, it doesn't mean that it's just a container of all the new, just the new things uh, that I've, I've found in it on my own, on this journey. Inherent Vice now means all the things those guests brought to it, from Kim Morgan to Jordan Harper to Alicia Malone to Ryan Johnson to Angelica Jade Bastien to you and everyone in between. All those interpretations that we've heard at the beginning of this episode, they're here now too in the film. And that's the magic of this film to me, is that it was made in such a way that it could mean and contain anything. It could mean anything, but you'll only find those meanings if you are willing to open up and receive them from others. And that is, that's such an incredible thing that I learned is maybe that's super obvious and everyone's going, well, yeah, that's what happens when you talk about a movie. But to me, like that is the last thing I expected to happen when talking about this film. I thought I was just going to continually make my piece uh, or make my argument and and just like hammer it at people until they submitted. I didn't, I don't know why I thought that would be an entertaining show. (laughs) Uh, And, but no, it's, it's, being able to see inherent vice and by extension and again we're getting kind of highfalutin here but whatever it's a, it's, an, it's an inherent vice podcast i don't know what you think we're going to talk about you don't you don't just see the movie that way you see the world that way and, and you start to see through all these different sets of eyes and interpretations and experiences you could never have and it just it, it does it makes you a better person it makes you a better viewer and it makes the thing you love the work of art you love it makes it a better work of art because you're able to recognize oh shit this film could be anything and not yeah. because not because it's made so haphazardly or emptily that it's just like an empty vessel, you know. It's not just a splotch of black ink, and you, it's not someone just roarshacking and telling you, yeah, it's a, it's a hippopotamus. If you want to be sure, whatever. No, it's it's <laughs> the, the people behind it. And I don't think that this is hyperbole to say that Thomas Pynchon is a literary genius, and I don't think yeah. it's a hyperbole to say that Paul Thomas Anderson is a cinematic genius. And you had these two geniuses come together and make this film that could be absolutely anything. And that will never not be a marvel to me. That will never not be magic to me. And in a year this rotten, that is a, it's a lifeline. It is a type of cinematic lifeline that this film that prior to this year was just kind of a sad, love-lorn, funny movie to me. It's a pandemic movie now. It's a 2020 movie now, and it's also a primer how to survive in a world like this i go all the way back early and early very early episode with critic drew mcqueenie who and you'll hear him say it you'll have heard him say it in in the 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 opening best of reel that we have you know in times of such chaos as these it's 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 acts of decency that matter most and that's something i never saw that this film argued me this person who's seen it a million times i didn't see that this film argued that until drew told me and then i see that now and i see that as we're watching it in a time of chaos and it makes this movie even more of a life preserver as we're all jumping off the golden fang (laughs) trying to get to get to the shore it just makes this movie such a life preserver and man that's just magic i keep using that word but what's It's better than that. It's 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 magic, and I and I and I love each and every one of our guests for for doing that and for showing me that, whether they intended
4: to or not. Well, Trav, it's it's part of you know it's part of a lesson. I think that lessons can be learned and they can be lived. And I think if at the end of one eight minute, if I told anyone anything, it's like I got to see my favorite film one minute at a time yeah. through the lenses of some of the most incredible people in the world. And I learned so much and I feel enriched by that. And I think that I could have told you that at the beginning of this project that you would feel enriched by it and you want to you know, pick the great guests and you'll be challenged by their opinions of the movie and you want to have people who love or loathe this movie as part of this experience because that's what you want. You want to enrich your, your eyes and enrich the film. But I think that now that you've lived it, and, you know, I, I get to hear, it's funny that I get to hear you like one, I'm one of the first people who gets to hear you have a revelation, like to experience the revelation of someone saying something, yeah. you know, like, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, a couple of the big ones that I just think of is, you know, there's the Matt Zoller-Zeitz as he talks about how, you know, Bigfoot wants to be Doc and Doc wants to be Bigfoot, but they're both like, they're they're fundamentally wrong in their assertion of what either profession actually does, like, or what either lifestyle actually means, you know, Walter Chaw saying like lurid assidium, like uh, in reference to <laughs> like th- this, this film as in like, you, you know, you, you kind of get lured in by this, this feeling that it wants you to have and it's an intoxicant in many ways, but also sometimes that's like a, you know, it's, it's ultimately a failure and, you know, and the fascination with um you know, Love and to the point of destruction, like Angelica J Bassi, and I think it's you know I think for listeners too, you can you sharpen your eyes and you get exposed to these things, and it never is you never, you never. is so won- much. This movie is so much. Like I'm getting so excited. I'm gonna go home and watch
3: it. Again. This movie is so fucking much. And I'm I'm being a very professional host. I know I'm talking all over you, but this movie is so much. It has so fucking much to it. And God, (laughs) if it doesn't get you excited, I don't know what will, especially in a time as dark as this. You have it in your ability right now to watch one of the greatest works of art of the 21st century, and it will be a comfort to you. It was made for times like this. They made it for moments like this. They knew times like this were coming because times like this have always been coming. And this is a movie, whether you're falling in love or you're breaking up or you're afraid of getting sick, or you hate the president, or you, you've you lost someone, you think they might still be alive. God damn it, this movie has so much. And if you just want to see some knock-knock jokes and see Joaquin Phoenix get hit in the head with a hammer, well, by God, it's got that, too. It's got the best dick and fart <laughs> joke you're ever going to see. And what a work of art. I'm sorry, but I had to. I had to. I got excited. You got yeah, me wound You up. have to.
4: I, I did get you wound up, and I'm just going to ask you before you introduce like the saying that we're talking about, would it have been better with Penny Kimball? Um, <laughs> oh god you're one of those <laughs> no, no 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 i'm just look i i just i was saying that to be penny only wants her for dirty
8: hippie thrills
3: she doesn't really <laughs> doesn't really love him he is a
4: kinky <laughs> thrill doc is a kinky thrill to her Listen, i love
3: penny i love penny but they're not gonna last shasta understands doc and doc. okay understand
4: be, there you shasta. go be, there you understand.
3: go all right And it was, it's funny that you mentioned that so it used to be when i thought of this movie i thought of doc and shasta i thought specifically of the scene usually when i thought of this film i thought mm. of doc and shasta this is a doc and shasta movie this is a love movie to me it was it was it still is but more than it's all it was to me was, this is a love story and that's what i thought of is, is this scene and i thought of this movie but you know what i think of now and i think it's kind of beautiful now instead of thinking of thinking of the ending of this movie uh when i think of hair i think of the opening shot i think of the mm. pacific ocean between the bungalows the sound of waves rising and falling back. And I think of those two little kids running past to go play. I think of that. I think of that noise. I think of that freedom and not, not just that freedom of childhood of, of, of these two kids, yet untainted by the little kid blues, but of the freedom of a film still in its first scene when it still has the chance of possibility. I, mm. A film in its first scene, it could become anything or everything. And the miracle of inherent vice is that it does. And that's something that I don't think I would have ever found on my own or seen on my own with the film just living in my big old head. It's that I had to go on this journey of Diddy and S one-on-ones with other people the way Doc had to. And I had to be told their stories in order to live. And now, now I think of this movie, I don't think of... I don't, it's not just limited to a love movie. It's an everything movie. And that is my final argument. My final overarching argument is that it's a. It's not just. A, it's not about love, baby. It's about. It's about <laughs> everything. everything, baby. That's what it is. <laughs> and one, one last PTA impression for you. It's about everything, baby. that that that, that, that is. That's, it's about everything. And how many movies can you say that about? That this is truly just. It's just about life. And I'm speaking of which, speaking of which, because I am speaking to the man who got the man, M-A-N-N, twice,
8: twice,
3: Mm. like you son of a bitch, twice on his podcast. Um, I did want to say that I think in retrospect, and it's been a nagging thing, and you and I have gone back and forth about it, and I've, I've told you my issues with it. I think mm. it's been somewhat important that we didn't have people directly involved with inherent vice
4: on the show. There were opportunities, and it's not like—and a couple of—and a, and a couple of significant ones too, guys, yeah, just it, out there. Without without sort of spoiling, there was a couple of significant people who were on the precipice of being a part of the show and then decided against We're not going to get
3: into it. reasons why. We're not going to uh, get into reasons why. It's not that I, and it's not that I didn't want PT on, and I fully admit. We were we were in talks, uh, but then you know uh, the the last minute green lighting of his new film in the midst of a pandemic made that impossible. It's the same reason we unfortunately he he wasn't able to be interviewed in Adam Neiman's book, the wonderful Adam Neyman. Um, and I'm not saying I would never want to have him on. Of course, you know, if PTA calls me tomorrow, we're doing a whole new season of Incriminal Vice. Um, but I <laughs> will do not... a bind- we'll, do, we'll do a bonus episode. <laughs> I don't think, yeah, I think, uh, but I'm well, you know, the way I talk, I, I can milk the whole season out of that one conversation. Uh, but I'm not sure how good an idea, and I want, and this began to really kind of complicate the idea of having people who made the film on. I'm not sure how good an idea it would be to have him look back on this because i think and i'm going to keep using this word i think the magic of this film is that it can be anything we need it to be Mm. and to be told exactly what it is
4: well i just kind of
3: kills it in a way or if i if i if i I were to say so jordan jordan
4: Jordan rap put i think it was jordan rap or um one of the uh one of the new bev boys were talking about this is like when I first wondered about your obsession about this movie. I wasn't able to appreciate it. Yeah, it's Elric Just from a, Elric. A podcast. Elric. yeah, Elric. He said something to the effect of, and people would have heard it in the opening. Is like, but this is not like, anything's possible movie. Like you, you can tell ta- anything's possible, and anything can be argued. And I think that that's kind of the beauty of it. And the and even for folks who listen to Michael Mann and myself talk at the end of one heat minute. I wanted to talk about his experiences, but I didn't think ever that he would be prescriptive about the exact meaning of the movie because the movie had meant so much before, you know. So exactly. The, it's, it's, you know, being told with PTA, you know, where he's like, it's about love, baby. Well, actually, no, it's not. Like, I mean, it's not. <laughs> I think we can you definitively imagine, say.
8: <laughs> you
3: imagine the blood draining from my face, the horror if I said, this is what this movie means to me and it saved me. And he'd be like, no, no, it's just you know, it's about politics, and uh you know, we was trying to make a good movie. uh You know,
4: if he was but, dismissive, uh, your heart would break. You'd be like Ralph. True. You'd be like Ralph in that scene where Lisa breaks his heart, like you know, the whole i like, <laughs> choo choo choo's you scene where well, that's, it's just meme to death. You do. Oh. That's, that's my whole point.
3: Is you know, I'm not. By the way, I'm not comparing PTA to a, de- a deity, but. If we're all sitting around trying to figure out the point of life, we're like, hey, maybe it's helping people. Or, hey, maybe it's falling in love. Is there anything better than falling in love? Fuck no, there's not. Maybe it's this, maybe it's that. And then God were to show up and go, no. No, it's not about any of those things. It's about toiling and, un- and nigh unbearable agony of a purgatorial existence and then dying with no meaning. That's why I made this thing for shits and giggles. Love, no. So you don't want to hear that because then it ruins what's so important to you. And so I think in a way, what has made this show special is it's it's all been on the audience side, whether that audience, yeah. is it, it, whether it's writers, whether it's directors, whether it's critics, whether it's uh, cultural commentators, whether it's other podcasters, it's it's all people who have been on the same side of the screen with this film, and the wildly divergent ways in which they've been inter- able to interpret. And I think that's been the most important thing. It's been a show of interpretation, not a show in which someone with the actual knowledge comes on and says, "Well, no, this is actually what it is, and this is why I did it." You can read, you know, you can read. Uh, but it doesn't belong to him.
4: For that,
6: yeah, that, that,
3: Well, that's and, the and thing. And
4: then, and then, in the nicest possible. possible, yeah, in the nicest possible way, it's like pension doesn't. Pension put his v- vision out into the world, and it's articulated as clearly and as crisply as he could. And PTA put his vision out into the world, and it is a synthesis of some of those ideas and an expansion. And a, as you said, it like kind of is a is a is a a, a repositioning of perspective in a way, and yeah. an emphasis. Um, but how we interpret it is all on us and all on the great guests of this show. And and that's what is actually enriched. That none of those visions are wrong. Like and, and I think what's awesome is the symphony and the chorus of all of those enriched opinions coming at you and i think that that's what we can hope for with the show is that when people are watching their favorite thing they're learning to love it in new ways with every episode exactly
3: exactly and again i'm boy i'm gonna keep beating the same drum with this word i need to get a thesaurus how magic is that that we can that we can know a film so intimately intimately And yet, as intimately as as two guys who have been talking about a movie for a goddamn year, we can know it as intimately as that. And yet this film still retains so much mystery because like you said, you know, uh, there's no wrong answer. There's no wrong interpretation, but at the same time, we don't know if there's a right one. And so Mm. it makes the film so open to potentiality, to possibility, to magic. God, this is a magic movie. I'm getting so (laughs) excited. You know what? I was getting kind of tired I was getting kind of tired of doing a show, but my God, I feel reborn. It's like—is this where you're
4: gonna announce what your next project is? Is that it's how excited like, you are?
3: Well? It's—it's like the last five minutes of a Highlander movie. I'm going through a quickening here. The lightning is striking. I'm excited. I'm ready to talk about the movie for another season. Uh, I don't think anyone else is ready for that. All—all <laughs> all that said, and by the way, I'm very proud of myself for having not yet gotten emotional. Um, oh boy, now I'm gonna. Uh, all that said. After spending all that time talking about how I realized it's not just a film about Doc and Shasta, that plot wise, it's even more about Doc doing one good thing for little Amethyst Harlingen in an era of evil, rescuing her from the little kid blues by giving this girl, and this is where I'm gonna get, <laughs> this is where I'm gonna like get to you, giving her the father she never had, but always deserved doing that in a time of evil, as well as being a film about an infinite amount of other things, despite all that, despite saying it's not about Doc and Shasta, where you and I, Blake, where we end up is right back here, right where it started with Larry Doc Sportello and Shasta Faye Hepworth back again, in their eternally contradictory state, which is alone together. Yeah. And you know what? I think we're at that place in the episode where we see them like that one more time.
7: Remember that day, the Ouija board set us off into that big store. This feels the same way tonight. Just us,
8: together. Oh, it's almost like being underwater.
7: The world. Everything. Gone someplace else.
1: Just figured it was sort of lead setting us up.
7: No. Yeah, her Ouija board and She knows things,
6: Doc. Yeah. Maybe about us that we don't know.
8: Just not me, we're back
1: together.
3: by my love okay so uh, day now. oh god this movie this movie this ending oh uh, okay so uh back in 2008 uh esquire magazine ran a profile on pta and it began with this anecdote from a childhood teacher of his uh, carol stevens who remembered him fondly as a brilliant troublemaker who always talked about being a filmmaker and but but she got a little sad got real sad when she recalled the following she said when he did magnolia i sent word through someone who worked with him to tell paul it would be great if he could come back to the school for a visit i'd love to see him and the very cryptic answer she got from his people was paul doesn't go back and she paused for a moment and she looked at the interviewer and she said isn't that strange (laughs)
8: <laughs> Paul, doesn't,
3: Paul doesn't go back. Paul doesn't look back. And isn't that strange, Blake? Isn't it even stranger that that this is a man who spent three hours in one of his films declaring that the book says that we may be through with the past, but the past ain't through with us. And then he made this, certainly his most contentious and confounding film to most of his fans and critics and haters alike, in which every single character is looking in the rearview mirror at their past with mm-hmm. regret and longing and it makes me think that and i'm not i'm not gonna i'm not gonna do that thing where we try to dissect too much the mind of the person who made this but i think the reason that paul doesn't go back anymore is because he is someone who knows the exquisite pain of going back and knows that siren song of wanting to go back and i think that is why a film like this is one of his most poignant because it's about that thing that he, I think, wrestles with and that we all wrestle with, which is that that urge to have to go back, to want to go back. And, and Can I give
4: you a, in a Michael Mann word, a contrapuntal argument to what oh, you're saying about him right now?
3: Oh, do it, do it.
4: Is that I think Paul goes back in his filmmaking. That's how time. he goes back all the time. And mm-hmm. so when it comes to perhaps the emotional burden of going back and actually participating in life. You know, there's a artists are different, are, are interesting people. And especially someone as un you know undeniably brilliant and genius as he is, I think that all of his characters are riddled with regret, even starting in Sydney. They are absolutely riddled with it. They are constantly looking back and they're chasing ahead of those things, they don't want to look back. And I think that that's like one of those things that is, is staring him in the face. And even in my most recent watch of Sydney slash heart eight, I, uh, I, I looked at John C. Riley's, I looked at John C. Riley's character who plays John and I thought, Oh, it's Paul. Yeah. It's the most naked version and authentic Paul. He, Paul is there with, his mentor. Yeah. He, he's, he's right there. Like he, this, this is the guy, this is this imperfect guy who, you know, loves a girl, Clementine, who's absolutely not good for him, who makes friends with people who he's charmed by, but absolutely are destructive friends and is graced by Sydney as a mentor for the Baker hall, because just by pure luck and his mentor has the most tragic bent of all time. Like, you, you know, he, which we don't necessarily need to spoil and so i think that that's all he does his expression is looking back and i think that when i you know he may not want to look back when it comes to like the physical real life things but you can't deny you can't deny how you look back you look back at everything and and especially tumultuous moments in history and time and innovation he's in that's his entire expression
3: it is and and um, to dial that into this scene in particular to make it about this scene because we probably should sooner or later something interesting we, you know this has been something of a kind of a, a, a retrospective episode we keep looking back at at this series as well as this film and you know talking about our journey through it if there's if anything has changed the most in my journey as a viewer this year uh any any one single thing not just the big broad elements we've been talking about it's been my understanding or conception of who Shasta Faye Hepworth is. How she's grown from a plot motivator to a mystery to a flesh and blood woman with needs and desires and humanity that Doc Bless's heart just can't seem to grasp the totality of. And this last rewatch of of all times, it was just this last rewatch where she became in a way so fully human to me uh, because I realized she's looking back too. For the longest time, I feel like she has remained elusive to all of us, for or to most of us. And yet, it was this rewatch where I said, "No, no, she's just like everyone else in this movie. She's looking back." And you know, as, as we just saw, the film ends with Daka Shasta driving down uh, 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 Santa Monica in the middle of the night, surrounded by all this cotton candy fog of cosmic purples and pinks, uh, starred with all these nebula, these these red dwarves of tail lights in the background, and these supernovas of headlights just behind them. But there's something about this Shasta that seems so more real and concrete, not just the memory. This is the real woman, the real love, together with Doc again, like a record, always skipping back and coming to the same place. And she's a real person again, sitting next to him, like Joan Didion or Hope Harlingen or Thomas Pichon, even Charles Manson. She tells Doc a story about themselves. She tells a story about an Ouija board in a world that was once there. She tells them a story in order to live and she has to look back with regret in order to do it. Remember that day, the Ouija board that set us off into the big storm? This feels the same way tonight, just us together, always almost like being underwater, the world, everything gone someplace else. And it, what that did is it made me see this scene as yeah, she's she's no different than Doc. She's looking back to that one day in the rain and she did it. She did it before in her postcard to Doc. And he even wondered, you know, uh, what made her think that? What made her think of that day? And the, the the sad longing in which she says, "Nothing was supposed to happen this way, Doc. I'm so sorry." And
4: Trav, I'm gonna have to be contrapuntal again. Doc's oh, alone. It, I, in- s-
3: I swear to oh. God. It, I swear to God. If 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 you if you tell me this ending is hopeless, I swear, Blake. I swear.
4: I'm Doc's alone flipp- in this docs alone in this car.
3: Oh, you're one of those, huh? You think he is? You think he's alone? You don't think this is re- you think this is his ideal eye Shasta?
4: you think? I have never had the opinion that he was alone in this car until this morning. Australian wow. Time. Wow, we, I've never had that opinion. You and and I had it's two shifts only tonight. it's only in the and you know what? I'm happy for that like a chorus, like two divergent potential pathways like those grooves in a record you mentioned for them, you know, this minor groove, but I'm still listening to the same you know i'm I'm still experiencing that same moment, but it's just two potential possibilities. but when I watch this moment, the big question mark that I have and why so strongly taxi driver resonated with me this morning is it is exactly that it is that Shasta is so she's saying everything that doc what kind of girl do you want me to be, Doc? She is saying all the things that Doc would want her to be. She's mentioning the moments on the Ouija board, that magical moment that only Sorta Lee, his innermost thoughts and feelings had manifested into his memory and then he had expressed it into the world. And Sauterly being real or not, as Ryan Johnson put so wonderfully in the, his episode, is immaterial to the outcome of this movie, whether you think she's imaginary or real but if you did even for a sex split second subscribe to the fact that she was something that was this internal figure in Doc's mind and not a friend this maybe a bit of a transient figure the moment that Shasta mentions Sodalis in this moment is basically if you believe that Shasta is not re- uh, if you uh, believe that Sodalis is not real uh, it is the mo- it is the moment that manifests her as you've got as me on a, the ropes it, it's the moment that manifests her as a dream moment. She is literally fulfilling the destiny that she's That's fulfilling sharp. the destiny of, of being in his mind and his memory. And she's literally saying all the things that he needs to hear to be that perfect thing. And why he's looking so ferociously into that rear view mirror is that he's, he's racing away in that pot fog okay. from what his reality is. And, okay. and, and that is why I felt hopeless because in that moment mm. he's alone.
3: Well, he's alone in the book. He's
4: he he's, and I know that that because I have the book and I was researching that too and read it. And you so beautifully distilled it at the beginning of this episode, um. And I just was like, the the moment she mentioned leash, I was (laughs) like, he's alone. Oh boy, you've got me. You know what? You got me. And you know what? My 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 host with the most, Paul doesn't go back.
8: Oh.
3: All right, Blake. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. <laughs> I'll give you that. That's, that's, a, that's a good argument, but I'm, I'm going to roll up my sleeves here. You roll know,
4: them up, roll them up.
3: If a friend of
4: we the don't, ha- neither of us have to win. That's we can true. be like, yeah. we, this I'm, isn't a, uh, this isn't a win. This is, this is maturity. not about winning. This is not about winning or losing because I think you've done exquisitely. And I think that in this, in this scene, particularly, I, I want to believe that she's there. If there's, if there's, if if there's, if there's, if there's there's justice in, if there's any kind of justice in the world it's that she's there, but maybe 2020 has done it to me, my man. She ain't there.
3: I love how I've spent an hour talking about how enthralled I am of my guests being able to open me up to new possibilities in the movie. But the second you do that in the scene, I'm like, no, get the fuck. Get out of here. here, I've I've been, I've been so pontificating and pretentious about how amazing that is. But the second you challenge my worldview, I'm like,
4: no, no. Okay. It is the final episode. You know, sometimes a, it takes you sometimes <laughs> it takes you time to process. I get know, it. A, I've been the guy on the other end of the mic where you have blown my freaking brains out and I've gone, "Son of a bitch, that's well, a great point." Thank
3: you. That 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 oh, thank you. That's a pretty ace argument, I will admit. And I this is normally the time of the episode where my mind would be blown. I'd be like, oh, my God. But you know what? I'm not going to let you do it. To me. I'm not going <laughs> to let you take hope away from me. Not now. When things are as dire and strange and scary and weird and sad as they are, I'm going to make my case to you. You watch this scene. Doc keeps looking back multiple times in the sequence. We see light from over his shoulder catching in the rear view, catching his attention, mm-hmm. drawing his eyes which with the way the scene is framed has him looking directly at us when he looks in the mirror, which I love because throughout this show, myself and others have noted how much Doc is us and we are Doc, he's our surrogate in this madness. So of course, when he looks in the mirror, he's gonna see you and me. He's gonna mm-hmm. see every guest on the show and everyone at home that watches it. What does the scene also do? The this scene like so many others is this film in microcosm. It shows the circuitousness of time of life there's always something in the past that's going to catch your attention some bright light and i know many guests as yourself have argued that this scene is a a, a kind of a downer kind of a repetitious purpose purposefully repetitious uh eternal of the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind kind of ending that these two are stuck in a rut or a loop whether alone or not uh with doc and Shasta, even exchanging and repeating their post sex joke to another this don't mean we're back together of course not. But Blake, as Donk is lost in the fog, continually distracted by that bright light from the past, I do believe that Shasta is next to him. And what does he do here? What does he do with Shasta at his side? He keeps driving forward. Mm. He doesn't, he doesn't pull over like he considers doing in the book, hoping for a restless blonde to appear on driving a stingray in the fog. He keeps moving forward into the future. And while the repetition of the line about not being back together and the rising sound of Chuck Jackson's any day now, hints that any day now his love may leave him again. And that this is the loop that the two of them will forever live out. I don't know. I find a hope there, a knowing hope. Doc's little smirk and his chuckle as he looks at us makes me think he sees it too for the first time doc gets the story it's being told our clueless and befuddled doc gets the story for the first time and i think he gets it because shasta's there with him he gets the joke and maybe what he sees here is that life is just like a record that plays and skips back to the same place and that maybe that's okay If you've got the right person dancing to that music with you or riding shotgun, listening to KHJ as you drive alongside the Pacific, that maybe it's okay. In a world of an hair of ice where eggs break, glass shatters, and chocolate melts, maybe that's enough because it has to be. I don't think, I don't think he his idealized version of Shasta would be so world weary and melancholy otherwise. I think he is simply sitting next to this woman who he recognizes is imperfect, who he now recognizes cannot be insured because of inherent vice and he is okay with it because she's the one he loves. And so he's okay writing out this loop with her because it's with her. Note how the master a film that is extraordinarily similar to this one ends with Freddie and master unable to move forward to that place together, that repetitious place together. Freddie mumbling, maybe in the next life, they'll get it right. Well, here we have PTA playing out that same old song on the record player, except this time, the two people in love are side by side, riding out in that fog. And isn't isn't it curious how in his next film, Phantom Thread, (laughs) ends for its two lovers. So I hear what you're saying, but when I watch this ending, I see two people who are struggling, but I also see two people who, there is the that, that knowing smirk and chuckle of recognition and the acknowledgement of their loop together and the acceptance of it. Because if you're gonna be in this loop and you're gonna listen to that record play, this is the person you wanna be dancing with you to it. And by God, I'm, I'm that's what I'm taking with me when I watch this ending. That is, that is what I have to take with me in a year, in a year, this bad, I have to, I have to believe that Shasta is really there. And I have to believe that doc knows there might be some pain ahead, but it's okay because Shasta Faye is worth it. And the way that she looks at him is as, as mysterious and coy as she is. The fact that she looks back to, I think she's thinking doc's worth it too. So we're going to have to agree to disagree, brother. That's,
4: that's, that's, I was just going to say, I, I, I I want to ride out with you in the sunset of this ending,
3: the way that you view it. <laughs> oh boy. Hey, this has been fun. Haven't
4: we? we you, we've had fun. We've had fun. We've had a blast. My friend, you've been wonderful.
3: Oh, get out of here. But yeah, that's, I, I know there's this ending. It's the scene. is a short one. There's not much to do other than just say that. That's your piece. That's mine. And I'm going to try to be the good host. And uh, not ask you to delete your entire argument uh, <laughs> in the edit so that I sound. But no, no, I I think it's a really ace argument. I I, I love the connection you make to Sor Lige, But yeah, when I I watch this ending and I think I think yeah, it's 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 two people kind of recognizing. Look, we're not we're not perfect, but for the first time, that's the thing. For the first time in the movie, it's like Doc recognizes that Shasta's not perfect. She's no longer the fantasy. She's no longer the girl with the flower the bottom half of a flower print bikini and a country fish t-shirt she's no longer perfect the, the the perfect version of her that didn't exist the version that he thought needed rescuing instead now she's just a flesh and blood woman who's fucked up and done some fucked up things just like he has and he's able to yeah get distracted by the light that keeps coming from behind but what does he do he maybe she's the light forward. that's coming from behind maybe he hey i don't know maybe <laughs> maybe 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 but maybe, that's baby. That's that's the greatness of this movie. That's the greatness of this ending. Is that fog could be anything. That light could be anything. Shasta Faye could be anything. But to me, to me, to me, I wouldn't say that this is a happy ending like people, you know, running off into the sunset holding hands. But this is as happy, this is a happy a movie as a weary world of inherent vice. <laughs> as a happy ending as a weary world of inherent vice allows, is two people driving off into the fog, alone, together. That's about as good as it gets in this world. And
4: well, I'm so I don't know about please, you, but I'll take I'm so it pleased. I think Doc will too. I think I'm so Doc pleased you chose me to drive off into the fog with you
3: on the show. <laughs> I have to say, I have to say, as we're wrapping up here, I, I just really quickly and I'm I'm so proud of myself. I didn't cry. I'm a big boy. Um
4: <laughs> uh, in, in the episode 165 the one sixty five of one eight minute. I did cry. You a did lot. well.
3: I, I Chad made me cry. Chad got all the tears out of me. And I I, I, I will also, I will also admit that I've been very emotional and teary today. I've I, I thought I was really excited to actually be done thinking about this movie and talking about this movie. And then all day I have been a mess. It's kind of sad that this year is over. But I just, I have to say to everyone who has listened to the, to the show over the course of this very strange year, it has meant the world to me that you have done so. Uh, the messages that you've sent, the hours that you've listened, I won't forget it. I know that Blake won't either. It um, has meant the absolute world to me. And to our amazing guests, I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for coming on, for giving your time and attention to such a dizzyingly nerdy endeavor. And this is where I'm going to get weepy. Uh, and I also have to say, again, thanks to our good buddy, Kat, who who narrated us through this madness. Amazing. With our cool-ass DJ, Jiminy Cricket, Sort of Liege, and I love her for it. And to you, sir, like... You you came to me at a very strange and fraught time in my life, <laughs> and uh, you you offered me a a show uh, that has very weirdly given my life a shape and a purpose in this very strange year, and you have allowed me to meet genuine life heroes of mine like Ryan Johnson, Megan Abbott. My God, um, my goodness. And you've also become an extraordinarily important friend to me in that time. And th- this, this, show has been absolutely nothing, but a gift day in and day out. Even when I've been tired and bitchy, uh,
8: <laughs>
3: this show has been an absolute gift and the, the way it has allowed me to see this wonderful work of art that I adore so, so, so very much. It has been it's just been absolutely amazing um so thank you again to the listeners to the guests to cat to blake and to you listening you know who you are thank you thank you thank you and as a final prayer as we make our ed- exits here may all daughters find their missing fathers may all wayward detectives reunite with their ex old ladies may we all find that one good thing and may we do it and do it well not quite do-gooders but may we do good all the same may the fog of this year burn off and may something else this time somehow be there instead we'll see what we can see and i'll catch you further down the road in that place where the fog has cleared now come on blake Like Godzilla says to Mothra, let's go eat someplace.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Like I said, and just like that, here we are at the end. Or is it? Maybe the inherent vice of time isn't just that you can't insure against it. Maybe it's that when the record skips back to the same place again, the song is a little different this time. Because you're different. And each spin can be a little different. And even if it can be a little different, maybe it can be a little better this time, and next time, and the next. I don't know. But a gal sure does like to hope. So, sure, this is the end for now. But you know how that damned record player always likes to skip back. So, we'll see what we can see every single time we watch Inherent Vice.